but I've been disturbed by people that I thought knew better fall for the anti-Semitism that's proliferated in the mainstream media, etc., and by governments and by politicians. This is very dangerous time for Jews in this country, much more dangerous than people think. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, Karen Haradine, anthropologist and journalist who specialises in anti-Semitism. Karen talks about Western support for Hamas. Some people really think Hamas is some kind of progressive movement that's going to liberate everybody from, you know, the tyrants that rule us. I mean, Hamas is a genocidal Islamist cult. It's a death cult cut from the same cloth as Al-Qaeda, as ISIS. She warns about Iran and China being behind recent events. Will Iran and China start to fight each other? I don't know. Or will they literally rule the world together, which is where we're headed? There's no democracy left. I'm Lee Hall, and this is British Thought Leaders. Karen Haradine, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. You recently released an investigative series with Professor Norman Fenton into anti-Semitism and the freedom movement. Yes. Do you start by briefly telling us you know, what is the freedom movement and, and why you felt the need to release this series and what you found? Sure. The freedom movement really is a name given to various organizations and activists and people who have protested quite rightly the uh, anti-science, CCP-inspired, tyrannical lockdowns for COVID-19, as well as the mandatory vaccines. Um, and it's, you know, there's been doctors, lawyers, professors like Norman. You know, there's, there's been a whole range of people coming together to protest. Um, and you do have, to a certain extent, uh, certain self-appointed leaders, etc. So it's been like an organic movement. It wasn't just like started as one thing. It's been an organic movement. And I've watched it over since, particularly since March 2020, starts to, it kind of started to grow. And quite a number of prominent people joined. And so it's really kind of grown quite a bit. But I noticed just over two years ago, right in the middle of lockdown, when I, one of the first lockdown protests was held, um, that anti-Semitism started to rear its ugly head within the movement. And I have, you know, through basically my Twitter page and a little bit of my writings, been warning the freedom movement that anti-Semitism doesn't only discredit, it destroys, and it's very dangerous, and it's wrong. But anti-Semitism is its own virus, and like all viruses, if it's not kept in check, it will proliferate and grow, and that is what's happened. We actually wrote the pieces before this current war in Israel, because we had noticed a real growth, a real plethora of anti-Semitism sweeping throughout the freedom movement, and we were both concerned. And that's what drove us to write the pieces, timely, I guess, you know, because literally anti-Semitism now has literally exploded uh, to frightening levels. I mean, I've been writing on anti-Semitism for a very, very long time prior to March 2020. It's what I basically wrote on, most of what I wrote on. And even during the Corbyn era, I have never seen so much anti-Semitism from everywhere. It's not just the left. It's not just the right. It's not just... Uh, academia, it's not just, you know, the uh, uh, guy working in a pub. It is everywhere and frightening. It's literally frightening. 
So did it come as a surprise for you? You must have known quite a few of these people. No. No. I've watched it grow. I've watched blood libels and conspiracy theories straight out of the, that czarist forgery, um, the protocols of the elders of Zion, proliferate, particularly on Twitter, particularly on Substack, with people part of the prevent movement um, who are also very prominent, starting just to bandy about and spread what are technically blood libels, and which straight out of medieval times. The same conspiracy theories that came from the protocols of the elders of Zion, which my own great-grandparents were subjected to a pogrom on the back of that in the Ukraine, had to flee the Ukraine in 1917 for Britain. I'm seeing the exact same things that they had to flee from happening here the same blood libels, the same conspiracy theories. And I've watched it happen over the two last two years um, within the freedom movement with these people. Um, even when I've tried to say something, the onslaught of abuse I've had has been absolutely extraordinary. So it didn't take me by surprise. It seems almost ironic that these people who founded this movement based on searching for the truth, questioning the official narrative, they would so readily adopt these conspiracy theories. You know, why do you think there's a correlation there? I mean, it's been quite troubling to see these people do this but, and just adopt it. One from just ancient conspiracy theories and blood libels that rear its ugly head at the moment, given a modern update, basically. I think, um, you know, I don't always want to attribute things to anti-Semitism because sometimes it's not. Sometimes people just get lost down rabbit holes of nonsense. It also becomes an ego thing. It becomes something like, how many likes can I get on Twitter? How many Facebook posts can I get out and gain Facebook followers? Or whatever it is, you know, for social media. That, it becomes an ego-driven thing. Oh, look how many people like what I'm saying. So I must be right. You know, only I know the truth because I'm so clever. It's, I think it's a very human flaw to work like this, to kind of delve into really what is magical thinking and destructive magical thinking and keep going with it because humans have a herd mentality. They'll follow what the crowd says. And if you say, you know, Israel is evil and all Jews, you know, are, are trying to control the world and you get 10,000 likes for it on Twitter, if you're egotistical, you will go, oh, I'm right and carry on. So it kind of, it's a vicious circle in a way. You, as you mentioned, you started working on this before the yes. terror attacks on October the 7th. Yes. Did those attacks shed a lot more light on, on how big of a problem anti-Semitism is? I think so. I think the last few weeks, um, I'm not shocked because I expected it and I've been writing on anti-Semitism for a long time. I know the rhythm of it. I know where it goes if it's left unchecked. But I've been disturbed by people that I thought knew better fall for the anti-Semitism that's proliferated in the mainstream media, etc., and by governments and by politicians. This is very dangerous time for Jews in this country, much more dangerous than people think. Uh, as a Jew living in Britain, how did it feel when you saw these massive pro-Palestinian protests? Absolutely horrific. I mean, I think some people really think Hamas is some kind of progressive movement that's going to liberate everybody from, you know, the tyrants that rule us. I mean, Hamas is a genocidal Islamist cult. It's a death cult cut from the same cloth as Al-Qaeda, as ISIS. These 
cults. I mean, there's own, you know, there are cults. There's own, it's the only way to describe them. They are responsible for the heinous persecution of Christians in Africa. I mean, I, I often write about persecutions of Christians and the, it's literally a jihadist war. The, what goes on in Africa is frightening with the jihadists. So Hamas are exactly the same, backed by Iran. Iran wants to establish a global caliphate. It's got the money, thanks to Western deluded politicians and useful idiots. And it's pretty frightening. It's very, very, very bad. And as a Jew living here, I, you know, we're not, it's anti-Semitism in this country is not new. And it certainly reached a bit of a crescendo during the Corbyn years when Jeremy Corbyn was Labour leader. But you felt that, you know, most of the British people were against anti-Semitism, that it was a fringe movement. Now it's swapped the other way around. It's almost like that, that the fringe movement or those who are standing with Israel and with us Jews and the majority are screaming for the blood of us in the streets of London and Birmingham and Bristol. Frightening, beyond frightening. I mean, it comes to something where you have to think, do I really want to go into the center of London on the day that there's a jihadist march? Do I really want, you know, I know that like I was speaking to friends in London yesterday, Jewish friends, and most of them were saying, we don't want to go out. We'll just stay in our homes. We won't even venture out into the streets. We're too scared. They are really scared, really scared. And who can blame them? Mm. We saw in Russia, this airport, uh, gangs of people invading the airport, searching for passengers from a flight from Tel Aviv. Yeah. In, that's in Europe. It's well, it's a kind of, I was reading up on that this morning. Um, I mean, the problem, the whole Russia thing is quite problematic in many ways. Um, and I would say that it is not something that is unique just to Russia. I think this has been unleashed everywhere. In, in South Africa, um, where I'm originally from, um, the um, Economic Freedom Party uh, is saying that Jews can stay in South Africa if they denounce Israel. I mean, talk about a cultural revolution. It's frightening. It's not just in Russia. It's everywhere. But what has happened in Russia um, with that mob screaming for Jews, there is a sense that I have, particularly the last few weeks especially, that anti-Semitism is now not only just fashionable, the, uh, the anti-Semites, because that's what they are, they Jew haters, are reveling in it. They're literally high on hatred of us. And that's what happened in Russia. You know, you get a mob, they are high on hatred, they're reveling in it, and they know that their governments and the police, as we saw even in this country, will do nothing to stop it. And that's the big thing, that's the issue. If your state structures and your institutions are not keeping Jews safe, then you know that you're in big trouble. Israel is in peril. God forbid it should falter. The diaspora Jews, like myself, are in great danger. What do you think the end point would be if, if, if things carry on like that? I think what's going to happen, and I could be wrong, is that what I'm finding interesting is Hamas is asking Israel for a prisoner swap for the hostages held in Gaza. 
The very fact that they're doing that means that they are starting to lose the, the war. They would not be asking for that. They'd be asking for a lot more, I'd imagine, or holding out or actually sending more operatives into Israel if they could. There is a sense that they are losing it because of the bombardment and Israel, the IDF, is taking out a lot of the high echelons of Hamas. Um, but, you know, we have plenty of useful idiots for the UN. We have plenty of deluded people who think Hamas is this great progressive movement. They're in for a shock. I mean, Hamas throws homosexuals of buildings in Gaza. A lot of gay people and Christians flee the Palestinian territories, including Gaza, for the sanctuary of Israel. I mean, people just don't know anything. I think what will happen, there'll be a certain amount of pressure for a ceasefire and Israel hands will be tied, particularly by the Americans. The so-called aid for Israel, which is something I've written about before, isn't really like money just given. It's mostly in a form of credits given to the Israeli government to buy American weapons and arms. Um, and that's kind of what, in a way, it's good that Israel can arm itself, but it also ties them into the dictates of the US government. So if they want to be able to buy arms, they'll have to sort of toe the line. And the Biden administration is endemically, virulently anti-Semitic. It's something I have been documenting for quite a long time. Um, so I suspect a ceasefire will happen and, and then the whole thing will begin all over again. Uh, unfortunately, it will happen again. Um, Israel hands are tied to a certain extent. I was speaking to a friend of mine in Israel last week, and he was saying to me, no, this time they really are going to ignore what um, the rest of the world says and really root out Hamas. But I'm not so sure. You know, I don't know. I could be wrong. But I think there'll be a ceasefire, and then it will start all over again, a vicious circle. Can you talk to us a bit about anti-Semitism in the mainstream media? It is so bad in this country, not only just in this country, but in other countries at all, but I'm going to talk about this country, that you've had various organizations, things like Honest Reporting, spring up to actually counteract the virulently anti-Israel and bias and anti-Semitism uh, propaganda is the only way to put it in the mainstream media. The BBC is at the forefront of it all. Uh, they once did a report called the Balin Report, B-A-L-E-N, about anti-Semitism within uh, the BBC as well as they commissioned it themselves, and they never released it because obviously it would show a huge amount of anti-Semitism in the BBC. They're very quick to proliferate blood libels. I mean, they actually make me laugh in, in a very sardonic way when they quote Hamas spokesman on what's going on in Gaza. I mean, you might as well just call up Tehran and speak to the Ayatollah. I mean, that is kind of where it comes from. There's no sense of kind of, uh, you know, no understanding of what, of the geopolitics or the history of that region. They will question everything that Israel says, but take everything Hamas says as the truth, even if it's blood libels. We saw it with that hospital that Hamas claimed that thousands had died and Israel had bombed it. Turns out Hamas or, or um, Islamic Jihad had set off a rocket that had backfired on a hospital car park, which killed militants. But it was too late. The blood libel was proliferated. Everybody suddenly lost sympathy for the Israelis slaughtered by Hamas operatives, by these terrorists. 
And then the narrative changed. Oh no, Israel's terrible. Look at how many children they're killing. It, and it's true. And the BBC was front and center. This is normal for the BBC and Sky News and the mainstream media. The only mainstream media that's been a, a little bit okay this time is the Telegraph and the Spectator, but they do have occasional what I would say anti-Israel pieces in a, in a woeful attempt to balance their, their narrative on Israel, which I think is totally unnecessary, given that in the mainstream media, there's so much anti-Israel bias. Why do you even have to create a, an equality where there is none? <laughs> do you feel this is fixable? It seems like quite an enormous problem. It's a huge problem. I've watched it happen over the years. Um, they base a lot of the reporting on what Hamas or the Palestinian Authority does. They take it as like, this is the truth. Israel will give out its own facts. And that, that is like questioned or allegedly said, you know, it's very sneaky. It raises people's uh, in people's minds questions about what Israel is doing, but it kind of t makes them think that, oh, this is definitely happening in Gaza or the West Bank, etc. Um, it absolutely leads to horrific things. I mean, we saw two years ago um, a bunch of, well, I call them terrorists because that's what they were doing. They drove into from, I don't know which town, from up north, and they drew, a bunch of, you know, Hamas terrorist sympathizers really drove around Golders Green uh, threatening to rape Jewish women. And, you know, the, the police arrested them, but they were never um, prosecuted. I mean, this is what I'm talking about in terms of the state can't protect us. It's very, very scary. And we saw over the last uh, few marches, like the mob is screaming for Jewish blood and the police stand by and do nothing. And where it goes, we know what history. I mean, was this the last few weeks? Was this London 2023 or Berlin 1933? Because I cannot see the difference between mobs screaming to kill Jews and jihad compared to what the Nazis did. There's no difference. And it will get very dangerous. I mean, we're already in, in America, in Crown Heights. Um, there have been attacks over the weekend on Jews. A bunch of uh, youths threatened a Jewish family in a park in Brooklyn with a knife and said they were going to kill them. In Cornell University, I was reading this morning, Jewish students have been threatened so much um, that they've been put onto basically lockdown in their dormitories, in their university dormitories, to keep them safe because there's a lot of threats on social media to kill them. And the kosher restaurant on campus has been vandalized. This is what happens. And Jewish students are screamed at, shouted at, made to feel incredibly unsafe that many now no longer wear articles of faith. They won't wear the Star of David, they won't wear, you know, a yarmulke, you know, the head covering for Jewish men. They will be very cautious on campus. So Jews, once again, are being forced to hide, close their school, close their synagogue, practice their faith behind closed doors, just like they had to do in Soviet Russia. I mean, this is just extraordinary. And it's, it is for this country, which gave sanctuary to so many Jews, um, fleeing the Holocaust and after the Holocaust, it's an absolute disgrace. 
Has the term anti-Semitism been kind of misused at times as well and, and accused of places where it hasn't really happened? And has that compounded the problem? I think so. I think the issue is, unfortunately, a lot of the official Jewish organizations in this country are very much dominated by the left. So they'll go for kind of a woke version of anti-Semitism, which is very uh, damaging. It trivializes, it diminishes the term of anti-Semitism. For example, Andrew Bridgen, who I think is a very brave man, was accused by these organizations of Holocaust denial, which I thought was the most absolute ridiculous thing ever. Um, you know, because a lot of these, uh, you know, have bought in a lot of these kind of official Jewish organizations in this country have bought into the COVID narrative. And, and so they will attack anybody who isn't doing that, like Andrew Bridgen, who has broken ranks with the conservatives. Um, and so he was accused of Holocaust now, which was absolutely extraordinary, ridiculous, and very damaging because it does diminish the whole concept of anti-Semitism. That's where the damage is. Um, the other thing is George Soros. I've written for jo about George Soros several times for TCW. It is not anti-Semitic to criticize Soros, who literally is what we call a self-hating Jew. Um, he sponsors a huge amount, well, his society, Open Society Foundation, sponsors a huge amount of anti-Israel NGOs and organizations because Israel is a strong nation state. And for Soros and his organization, who want a global so-called utopia with no borders, um, that's an anathema. That's what motivates him with his anti-Israel stuff. And I think as well, probably a bit of self-hatred. It's not anti-Semitic to criticize Soros. Where it is anti-Semitic is where you criticize him because he's Jewish. Then that's anti-Semitic. But so you have to kind of put it in context. Context is everything when it comes to anti-Semitism. And there is trivialization, which is damaging because it just waters down the entire concept. You mentioned the left. I was hoping to explore that a bit more with you. Sure. I mean, Karl Marx, in his essay in 1843, The Jewish Question, uh, equated emancipation from capitalism, yeah. which is obviously his thing, and, and emancipation from Judaism as being one and the same. Yeah. And it seems left has struggled with uh, anti-Semitism ever since, really. I mean, do you think the, the hardcore ideolog ideological left gets a bit of a free pass when it comes to anti-Semitism? Oh, 100%, for several reasons. First of all, they're always, they're, they're so confused. They don't know whether to hate Jews um, because they are capitalists, because they are globalists, because they are running the world and control the media. I mean, if we controlled the media, we wouldn't be having this problem of like anti-Israel bias all the time. Everything would be pro-Israel, you know. I mean, it's just so silly in that way. There's, they're just so blinded to it. Our institutions in this country are dominated by the left. And that is where the problem lies. And in, I think quite rightly what you're saying, the anti-Semitism within the left stems obviously from socialism, communism, based on what Marx said, um, this whole thing against capitalists, etc. But it's obviously been updated for the 21st century, as we know. There is also this whole thing um, of a loving between uh, the left and Islamism, which I've been writing on for a long time. And that really stems from the 1960s, where the KGB collaborated with Yasser Arafat, the founder of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, to create the so-called Palestinian identity, to create the PLO, 
And the moment that happened, because of Russia, communism, socialism, etc., that's when the left really changed. Um, uh, they used to support Israel, because Israel really, at the beginnings, was almost like a socialist state with the kibbutz system, etc. And so the left supported it. But the moment the KGB created the PLO with Yasser Arafat was the moment that the shift happened. And we've been seeing what's happened ever since. Uh, um, pollster Matt Goodwin said that only one in ten Labour voters would sympathise with Israel. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if some of that's to do with anti-colonialism as opposed to anti-Semitism. I mean, the people think that uh, European Jews went and colonised Israel oh, yes. in the 20th century. Yeah. I mean, can you give us a brief history lesson? Sure. I mean, basically, that is, again, another trope, a half-myth, a lie, whichever way you want to describe it. I think in the West, um, and even in this country, there's a lot of dumbed-down education. And what I said about, you know, our institutions, our schools, our universities, everything is dominated by the left. And the left will take its um, lead from these kind of misinformation propaganda spread. The whole truth is, is that Jews have maintained a continuous presence in the Holy Land in Israel for 3,000 years. My own family on one side has been there since around 1850. It is a total myth to say that all of a sudden the land was, you know, populated by lots of Palestinians and you had all this invading horde of white Europeans kick them out and there we go. That's not what happened at all. Basically, Israel was a swamp until, you know, it was very sparsely populated. In 1948, when, you know, don't forget that Israel for a long time was under Ottoman rule, then under British rule, and, uh, and the British wouldn't let many Jews in fleeing uh, Europe during um, the Holocaust. Uh, it, it, so you still had a certain amount of Jews living there. Um, and they were pretty subjugated by the Ottoman Empire and then, you know, by um, the British colonial force, etc. Um, when it was created in 1948, there were already Jews had been there for hundreds of years, hundreds of years. Um, yes, you had a certain amount fleeing the Holocaust, but it wasn't in like millions, like people like to think. And don't forget that in the 1940s, and particularly when Israel was created in 1948, you had almost a million what we call Mizrahi Jews, Jews in the Middle East, being kicked out of countries like Morocco, like Syria, Middle East and Africa, like Morocco, like Syria, like Iraq, um, kicked out, expelled from Egypt, all over the Middle East, almost a million from 1948 into the 50s, expelled from their lands where they had been living for centuries and they had nowhere else to go but Israel. These are not white Jews, so to speak. These are, these are Middle Eastern Jews, black skin, brown skin, however way you want to describe them. Almost a million had to come to Israel because they were expelled, kicked out of Arab lands at the creation of Israel, accused of being Zionist collaborators or whatever way you want to put it. Um, so, as well as the fact that, you know, only half of Jews live in Israel. The rest of us are in the diaspora. So it is a complete lie to say that it was suddenly populated, colonized by lots of white Europeans. The other thing is that people need to realize is that the moment that the UN uh, 
created, you know, Israel through its resolution to create the state of Israel, the surrounding Arab countries declared war on Israel. And they told the Palestinians living there, well, they weren't called Palestinians there, they were called Arabs, you know, they're Arab, they were Arabs, to leave Israel uh, and they could come back when all the Jews were killed. But all the Jews weren't killed. We know what happened with the 1948 war, that Israel managed to defeat the Arab states that attacked it. And that created the refugee so-called crisis for Arabs who had listened to the uh, Arab leaders of the other countries that declared war of leader, left their homes. Israel said, don't, you know, the Israelis said, don't leave. We can live together. We can live in harmony. They didn't listen. They thought the Israelis, the Jews mainly, would be slaughtered, but they weren't. And that is what's also created these refugee camps in places like Syria and Jordan, where the regimes there keep the Palestinians in terrible conditions used as a pawn against their war against Israel. And I think what's also very important for people to realize is that our very own government um, has been funding Hamas and Iran and the Palestinian Authority in something called pay for slay, which is a heinous thing. And that has exacerbated the issues and exacerbated the lies. And we see the result of it today on the streets of London. Why is the pay for slay? Um, the pay for slay is heinous. What happens is that the money given to, to organizations from Western governments under the name of foreign aid, uh, given to like the Palestinian Authority or Hamas, is never given to the people themselves, it's given to the leadership. And what is, happens is that any terrorist who comes into Israel from the Palestinian territories and kills Israelis, and don't forget, it's not just Jews, they're Christians and Arabs, Muslims who live in Israel. They're also subjected to terror by, um, by these Islamists. If these terrorists are caught and put in Israeli jails, what happens is the Hamas leadership and the Palestinian Authority pay these terrorists a salary each month and their families each month. So we call it pay for slay because if a terrorist knows that if his, and this is, applies to suicide bombers as well, because they'll know their families will be taken care of and paid a certain amount um, by Hamas, uh, Palestinian Authority, etc. So even if they blow themselves up in a suicide bomb, they families will be paid, which is what is through Western money. It's Western taxpayers' money, pay for slay. And that often is a motivating factor, particularly because the ordinary Palestinians are kept in terrible conditions by their leaders, by the Palestinian Authority, by Hamas, uh, who siphon up all the money and keep them as, you know, particularly Hamas uses their own people as human shields, as pawns in this awful jihadist war against Israel. Um, and so for a lot of them, they have to kind of, in order to kind of feed their families, they will go kill Jews, they'll go kill Israelis, whoever they are, um, either by blowing themselves up or murder or just, you know, an act of terror, get thrown into Israeli jail and get paid every month a certain amount of money. It's absolutely heinous, evil, and Western governments finance that, including our own. The final thing I wanted to ask you about is what's Iran's role in all of this? Iran's the instigator. Iran wants to establish a global caliphate. And 
it's got a huge amount of money <laughs> thanks to foreign aid, thanks to the insidious Iran deal uh, begun by Obama, which has enriched and strengthened the Iranian regime. Thanks to its 25-year agreement that is signed with China a couple of years ago, thanks to the European Union who circumvented any sanctions around Iran uh, to buy oil from them. I mean, there are various ways that the Iranian regime has been enriched by so many um, countries and governments, as well as, of course, the UN. <laughs> um, and what it's done is that it has financed Hamas. It's, it has a checkered history with the Palestinian Authority, but it's still financed it. It's financed, uh, I've written about this a few months ago, a new uh, war front in the West Bank by financing Hamas and Lion's Den, a new uh, terrorist organization in there, and a Palestinian Islamic Jihad, not only in, the, um, in Gaza, but also in the West Bank. They um, have been financed by Iran. Ar Iran uh, has financed the hundreds of thousands of missiles and rockets that Hezbollah have uh, lined up on the Syrian and Lebanese border. Um, people want to know why people in Gaza are so poor. Ask Iran. Iran sends a fortune to Hamas. Hamas spends it on arms and missiles and weapons because of the jihadist war. And this is all about Iran wanting to create a global caliphate. It's not a land war. This is not about land. This is about ideology and theology. And that Iran is the most dangerous power we have uh, in the world today. And it's been strengthened through China. The West weakened itself through its listening to propaganda from China uh, on lockdowns, etc. That was, you know, the death knell for the West. And so we have a perfect storm, all instigated by Iran, probably the most dangerous regime that we have. Iran also dominates at the UN. It's now the ninth largest funder of the World Health Organization. It's sat on, in a sick joke, many times on the UN so-called Human Rights Council together with North Korea, you know, those bastions of democracy. Uh, and people just believe the propaganda that is spouted by these supranational organizations like the UN, etc. Um, this is really a battle between our enlightenment values and a medieval genocidal death cult led by Iran. What do you think Iran and China's end goal is? World domination. I mean, China has played the long game. Um, they want to dominate the world and for Chinese interests. And the West has been so easy to play. You know, I mean, it's quite frightening watching how few people know. But I mean, China has imprisoned a million Muslims in concentration camps, persecutes the Abrahamic religions, Christian Jews and Muslim in China, is a brutal colonialist power in places like Africa, has brought most countries through its um, brick and road, um, belt and road initiative. It's world domination and it's propaganda about lockdown, you know, which the West bought into stupidly because we have idiots running governments, etc. Um, has strengthened uh, China. And part of that was the 25-year deal with Iran, part of the Belt and Road Initiative. That gives Iran a lot more money to fulfill its uh, caliphate idealism and gives 
China oil to kind of uh, keep promoting its own world domination. Where it takes us, I don't know. Will Iran and China start to fight each other? I don't know. Or will they literally rule the world together, which is where we're headed? There's no democracy left. In March 2020, whatever democracy we had was killed by the lunatics in our government. There's no country to kind of offset the tyranny that we're facing from regimes like China and Iran. The only country I would say that Iran is probably a bit worried about is Israel, hence the war. But that's not the only reason why it wants to obliterate Israel. It's a theological thing. It's a hatred of Jews. Um, so, we're, yeah, we're in a very precarious position now. Karen Haradine, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you very much for asking me. Thank you. <laughs>